For the ministry of the word, I invite you to turn with me to Psalm 17. Psalm 17, this is a psalm, a prayer of David. Hear a just cause, O Lord, attend to my cry. Give ear to my prayer that is not from deceitful lips. Let my vindication come from your presence. Let your eyes look on the things that are upright. You have tested my heart. You have visited me in the night. You have tried me and have found nothing. I have purposed that my mouth shall not transgress. Concerning the works of men by the word of your lips, I've kept myself from the paths of the destroyer. Uphold my steps in your paths, that my footsteps may not slip. I've called upon you, for you will hear me, O God. Incline your ear to me and hear my speech. Show your marvelous loving kindness by your right hand. O you who save those who trust in you from those who rise up against them, keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me under the shadow of your wings from the wicked who oppress me, from my deadly enemies who surround me. They have closed up their fat hearts. With their mouths they speak proudly. They have now surrounded us in our steps. They have set their eyes crouching down to the earth like a lion that is eager to tear his prey and has a young lion lurking in secret places. Arise, O Lord, confront him, cast him down, deliver my life from the wicked with your sword, with your hand from men, O Lord, from men of the world who have their portion in this life and whose belly you fill with your hidden treasure. They are satisfied with children and leave the rest of their substance for their babies. As for me, I will see your face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied when I wake in your likeness. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, question for all of us is how how did we learn to pray? How did you learn to pray? Isn't it true many of us learned how to pray from our parents? So one of the joys of of parenting, isn't it true, is listening to our children pray and seeing and hearing what children are thankful for, what they want protection from, what they're sorrow, sorry rather for, for doing, their sorrow in their, in their own hearts and pleading upon salvation, forgiveness in Christ. There's something endearing and simple about a child's prayer, isn't there? There's something you and I love to hear. There's something enduring about a mature Christian's prayer as well. Someone who's walked with the Lord for, for decades. And they've been through so much together. The confidence of such a mature Christian imploring upon the Lord. We have before us here a, a bold prayer. It's a cry for help. It's written from a stance of innocence. It's a prayer, a prayer from someone who's been harmed, someone who's been sinned against. In this psalm, God here is teaching us a a heavenly appeal for earthly persecutions. A heavenly appeal for earthly persecutions. He teaches us this with an appellant's complaint, the appellant's 
present and the appellant's future. And in the beginning of the psalm, we're brought into a cry for salvation, a cry for help. And the, right away, we, we want to ask, where, where do you go for help? Where do you go for help? Well, children might be taught to look to someone in uniform, perhaps a, a police officer, maybe a, maybe a paramedic, when they're looking for help. One of my earliest memories is going to an amusement park with my family. I'm one of seven children. My, my father would, as immediately getting into the, the park, he would choose the, the highest, brightest thing in the park that you could see from everywhere. And he would point to it and he'd say, if you ever get lost, go there. Go there. And then we would all go there as a family and we would pick a spot that seemed to be somewhat out of the way. And he would say, stand right here if you get lost. Go here and we'll come and find you. And it's as if the psalmist here is is doing that. Look, there's somewhere we can go. There's there's a place of trust. There's a place of security for for us. Look at what the psalmist does. Look at where look at where the psalmist points us to. First he uses God's God's name there. Here a just cause, O oh Lord. That that name all caps, that's God's name. It's like a, a child calling out to their father. Their father by by his last name or by his his name or even invoking his title there as his as their as their father. It brings about a faithfulness in the relationship. It brings about to to one's mind the responsibilities and the relationship of a father to a child. For God has made himself known to Moses as a covenant-keeping God. I am that I am. He is the covenant God, the promise-keeping God. And in verse 6 as well, the psalmist cries out, O God, O God is the powerful, the creator, the mighty one. It's like a, a child who looks up to their to their father who is strong, who is able, he's tall, saying, do this for me. And that one can actually do it because he's, he's able. And in verse 7, he is the savior. He is the deliverer. So David is teaching us to cry out to God. He, he does this by giving us a rich vocabulary of God's names, of, of who God is and what God has done. He gives us God's titles and God's actions, teaches us to, to implore him according to his names and according to his works. Save us, for this is who you are. This is what you, this is what you do. And so we see here a rich theology, don't we, in David's prayer, using these titles, referring to God's work and, and imploring him. And perhaps you've done this as well. Maybe in, in catechism class, you, you learn something about who God is that was so comforting to you, and it's something that has brought about and continues to repeat itself throughout your prayers. Maybe it is God's providential care. Perhaps it is God's, God's power. A few weeks ago, I, I taught a lesson about God's power in creation and the comfort that we have to go to our creating God who sustains the world as with his hand. What a comfort that is to appeal and to pour out our hearts before our God who has made us and, and knows us. He knows our frame. 
and he knows the world in which we live. In verse 1, David wants God to listen. He implores, he says, hear, attend, give ear. That type of threefold cry, it makes the, the psalm sound so urgent and sharp. It's like the piercing cry of a rabbit that's stuck in a trap or, or stuck by a predator. It rings out with a type of threefold urgency. And our tendency when we're in trouble might be to, to write a list of, of all of the things before us and the pros and cons of, of different types of, of actions. But when was the last time the first thing you and I did was cry out to the Lord, hear me, this is what's happening. Notice also David's frame of reference here. He says he's innocent. This is not an ultimate righteousness, of course. It's not a perfect perfection under the law. This is a confession, rather, of, of someone who is repentant, of someone who is not walking in the ways of sin, but one who is innocent of a charge. This is the prayer of a believer. This is the prayer of someone who's, who's walking with the Lord. It's the qualities of someone we might say who's, who's fit for, for office. One who is above reproach in that sense. Above reproach. Not perfect. Someone who's repentant, living in God's ways, walking humbly before Him, loving justice, loving mercy. And we don't, we know how fruitless it is to cry out to God, asking Him for deliverance while we ourselves are engaging in the same kinds of sins that we want deliverance from the consequences of others acting that way towards us. It's equally foolish, isn't it, to, to be praying while we are engaging in all kinds of other sinfulness as, as hypocrites, as though we ourselves are, are seeking the Lord and seeking to repent and, and humbly walking before Him while we ourselves are, are walking in pride. No, that's not the heart of the psalmist. The heart of the psalmist is one who's humbled before the Lord, one who's walking in his ways, one who cries out to God to know him, to test him. Indeed, God has tested him. Indeed, he, he says he's innocent. He walks in innocence before God. When we look at the psalm, someone used this illustration. I could not forget it. He said when we're, when we're reading this psalm, it is as though we, we read this psalm and many others too as people who have, who have cross-eyed vision. On the one hand, we, we are looking towards David and, and the psalmist and his situation in this. One eye is over there, but the other eye is peeked forward, moving the other direction and is moved further in time. For one eye is focused on David and the other eye is focused on the one so much greater than David, one who is our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, David may have, have written this when he was fleeing from Saul. We don't know the, the, the historical circumstance of this. Perhaps when, when Saul was chasing him, hunting him like a bird in the hills, David was innocent. And think of two. The other eye focused on Christ, possibly in the garden, spending time in prayer, tormented by the work set ahead of him, literally sweating blood, sweating blood under the weight of suffering. And he cries out, he's, he's praying. And we also learn to pray in our suffering by considering Jesus crying out in, in his. And we 
learn to play, pray in our need because we read psalms like this and we see David crying out like this. And notice too, there's no intention here of vengeance. There's no, there's no desire to act out in, in anger. There's no eye for an eye type of, of response here. When you and I are afraid, isn't that, isn't that one of the most logical and one of the quickest responses that we have is to defend ourselves and seek justice, seek an eye for an eye. But the psalm calls us to pray with a, a clean heart. It means we should not reach out and try to strike someone else's reputation. It means that we don't, we don't act out in like fashion, responding in, in a like way as someone else has done to us. David, we know he, he refused to strike at the Lord's anointed. He would not react in kind to Saul's advances. And our Lord Jesus Christ too. He refused, refused to, to act in, in violence when he was arrested as well. He even spoke kindly to those who were persecuting him, even calling for, for the forgiveness of, of those who nailed him to the cross. For they knew not what they were doing. Have you and I ever prayed like that? Have we prayed in, in a distress from a, from a standpoint of, of innocent? I've been faithful, not perfect. I'm walking in faith in, in my Lord Jesus Christ. He's paid for my sins. I, I trust in his righteousness. I don't deserve this in that sense. I am seeking to walk before you in righteousness, even in this. Save me, deliver me, keep me from temptation. Deliver me from the hand of those who oppress me. Keep me from temptation of acting out in like manner as well. Have you ever prayed that way? On the one hand, perhaps it doesn't seem very reformed to pray that way. Often you and I were taught to pray, Thy will be done. We don't like to to bring our, our obedience in for God's ear to hear. We don't pray based on our, our innocence, right? We're not taught to do that. We, we're people who know our sin and misery, and yet the psalmist teaches us that we can be blunt, we can be honest, we can uncover our hearts, we can say, our, my motives have been pure here. Oh Lord, hear me. I have been faithful in this respect, and yet evil is at my door. Oh Lord, deliver me from this. Attend to my cry. Help me. Because I'm stuck. Many of these themes are found in the center of the thought of the psalm as well. Let's take a look there at the center, the, the appellants present here as well. I call this the appellants present because it addresses the present state of the relationship and, and the present situation here. The present relationship is brought into picture here. David repeats many of the same requests for God to hear him and to listen. It's like when, when you and I pray, and we, we want God to hear us, we want to be understood, and yet we also want God to act. And David's looking for, for an action here as well. He asks God to show him his steadfast love. And that is, that is a, a love that is separate. A steadfast love is a love that separates. I might use a, an illustration here of, of steadfast love. You think of a, 
a young man who, who loves a young woman, and that love, that affection, separates her out from the rest in his eyes. His loving gaze, in that sense, sanctifies her, separates her, consecrates her, distinguishes her from the others. She's different. In his eyes, that, that one is special. She's the one his heart beats after. He's, she's the one that, that he wants to be committed to more and more. This type of, of steadfast love, this is no casual summer fling. This is a, a type of love that can go the distance. It's not just an attraction. It's a closed eye to other options. This is a, a type of committed relationship. It's an investment into commitment. And this is a result of a, a type of fortified character, right? This develops and will, will only be, be made known or happen in someone who has a character for this type of I. An example of God's steadfast love is the way in which God too sanctifies, separates out, consecrates out a people for his own compassion, his own care. God chose Israel. He separates out a nation to be his own possession. He blesses them. And through them, he would actually bless the whole world. This is God's, God's loyal love. It's his covenant faithfulness as, as a husband, even of an unfaithful bride, which Israel was. David is pleading upon God's deliverance and salvation. And how much, how much more won't God act for those who plead upon the covenant faithfulness, the steadfast love of our God in Christ Jesus? For Jesus, too, has a bride, the church, whom he has redeemed with his blood. And surely God will consider the cries of the church for the sake of the Son. God's steadfast love in, in Christ Jesus is the foundation of prayer and supplication for his people. The psalm here goes on. It uses a few metaphors for us. The metaphor, the first one, is the apple of the eye. In Hebrew, that means uh, the little man of the eye. That is, if you were looking into someone else and you're standing quite close to each other and you looked into their eye, you would see in the black part of their eye your own reflection, a, a little person in there if they're staring at you. So it is as if the, the psalmist here is calling that God would keep the psalmist, David, you, me, as the little man of the eye that his eye would be upon us. And of course, if God's eye is upon us, that has the, the imagery of, of protection, of compassion. Similarly, too, it uses the, the illustration here, the metaphor of wings. These are not just wings of a bird. We think of a, wings of a hen, maybe, gathering the chicks and protecting them. But these could also be the wings, the corners of garments, garments had wings on them as well. The corners of a cloak were wings of a cloak. They resemble leadership, headship, protection, authority. When Ruth comes to Boaz on the threshing floor, she calls him to spread his wings over her, right? And that is a metaphor of his, of his family headship, of his protection over her. That's why he goes to redeem her. 
He goes to the first person in line, right, for for redemption. She wants to be under his wings, under his headship, his protection, his authority. And so the psalm here is is bringing all of this to mind. It's a beautiful picture here of protection, of security, using this family analogy, the protection of a husband, of a, of a father, but also also of one who is looking, one who sees. David is threatened, threatened by people who would seek to destroy him. It says in, in verse 10 that they're, their hearts, how does this put this? They have closed up the fat or their fat hearts. That is, they're, they're hard-hearted. It's not a soft heart. Another translation says they close their hearts to pity. We might say they're, they're cold-hearted. They have no pity. They're ruthless, calloused, arrogant. Look at their eyes. They, they have their eyes on David wanting to destroy like a like a prowling lion seeking the prey. This is like the devil's wicked, evil, cold-hearted stare, for he is a a roaring lion, right, seeking whom he will devour. And his his people, the devil's people, are like him. Jesus speaks of a people whose father is the devil, and so they are like him. They are also liars. They're also seeking those whom they would devour too. Jesus could say this about so many of the people that he encounters throughout his ministry. He encounters a similar type of of difficulty as well in the sense that that he's perfectly innocent. Innocent in a perfect manner, a holistic manner. Completely righteous. And yet, how many times isn't Jesus attacked by slander, false accusations? He's, he's even told that he's acting not, not according to God, but according to Beelzebub, the demons. And Jesus, Jesus not only falsely accused, but he endures such ridicule. All of this, in all of this, he's victorious over Satan and Satan's forces. It is through the victory of Christ, actually, that David can even pray this prayer. He has his eyes, too, forward, forward on the Messiah, the one to come. And as believers, too, isn't it true? We can pray, keep me the apple of your eye. Keep me and search for me. Keep me in your focus. Let your light shine upon us as well. But we can pray that in Christ and only in Christ. The blessing, the look of compassion, the steadfast love of God must be grounded in the work of Christ to redeem, to restore, to help. It must be in our Lord. Have you ever thought about the gaze of God searching and trying you, me? Think about our life. What confidence would you or, or I have if God kept us as the apple of his, of his eye, knowing his judgment, knowing God's holiness, to pray this is a disaster for those who are not in Christ Jesus, for those who do not repent, for those who are not washed in the blood of Christ. For God is a consuming fire. His searching eye and his wings mean protection and they mean discipline for his people. But for those who are not in Christ, God's piercing eye is a gaze gaze of judgment. It warns, warns of eternal condemnation. 
in Christ's salvation, in his forgiveness, in his assurance of, of salvation won for, for us, for, for his people. Can you, can, can I pray, keep me as the apple of your eye? Yes, in Christ, believers can. But without him, that is a disastrous prayer. It is a prayer of judgment, is it not? For God will look at us. God will see and God will judge. So I ask, at some point, you and I will be judged by the Lord. He will look at us this way. Why not pray today in the days of grace in Christ and have a confidence of Christ's salvation for you and for me? For that is, that is good news, actually. The constant gaze of God, it is good news in Christ, it is gospel news. But without him, it is shame. It must, must cause people to, to hide, to cower, to fear. But in Christ's obedience, in his righteousness, God's gaze is a gospel gaze, a good news. You and I will stand under that gaze now and later. Why not stand now? In Christ. David looks, David looks to God to arise. He's looking here, not just to the present, keeping him in the apple of his eye, but now he's looking forward as well. He's, he's looking not just to the present, but to the future here. Thirdly, he wants God to arise, to confront, to subdue, like Israel who cries out to God in the times of the judges that God would raise up a judge and deliver them. David, too, he's he's looking here for God's deliverance. And there's a powerful comparison in these closing verses of our consideration here. Notice, notice the type of people that David wants deliverance from. They're the ones whose portion is of the world in this life. They're the ones who have success. You see that? They have worldly treasures. They're satisfied with, with children. They leave in abundance to their children. David is speaking about here, he's talking here about the treasures of the world. It's like Jesus' words in Matthew 16. For Jesus says, For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? And Joshua said, for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And David says, As for I shall behold your face in righteousness when I wake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. Isn't this the same for all God's people throughout time? Isn't this the desire of the Christian to call that God would rise to deliver my soul from the wicked by your sword? Tell me, what goes on in, in our soul? Tell me, is your portion... My portion in this life, in this life alone, one whose womb is filled with treasure, one whose life is filled with security for, for now and the next generation. Are we a people who have traded our soul and eternal security for the pleasures and the treasures of the world? That's what the psalm is warning about. And the question, the question drives deep within our hearts, doesn't it? What satisfies you and me? Is it a satisfaction like David's with, with God's likeness? He confidently says he'll see God's face in righteousness. Will you? Will I in Christ? 
When we meet Jesus, whether, whether he returns and, and we see it, or whether we meet him after, after we are dead, what will we say? When we behold his face in righteousness, will you, will I be satisfied with his likeness? What a powerful question. Will we be satisfied in the likeness of Christ? Well, what happens when God's confronting means that he confronts us? What if his sword means a dying to self that we would live? What if subduing means he subdues your and my desire for treasures of the world, that we would have treasures in heaven? Would we be satisfied with the likeness of Christ when it means throwing off our worldly bonds, the likeness of the old flesh, and living in newness of life, walking with our God humbly in obedience and faith? James 5.16 says, The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. This psalm is a prayer, a prayer of one who says he is righteous, claims innocence, points to Jesus' perfect righteousness, perfect obedience, and it is a model, it is a model of God's people to pray in times of persecution for deliverance. Indeed, God teaches us here a heavenly appeal for earthly persecutions. You see it? Do you see it? It is a, an appeal that brings about a complaint. It is a, an appeal that brings about a, a present reality. It is an appeal with eyes to the future seeking God's redemption. You see this? It is a prayer. It is a prayer that also searches the hearts and the lives of those who pray it. Searches my heart, your heart, today too. It's a prayer that teaches us to pray looking to our Lord Jesus Christ and, and, and to pray it in the confidence and the boldness of him preparing a way. Hebrews 10, for instance, speaks of, of Jesus making a way through the curtain that is through his flesh. And then he calls those to have, have confidence and, and a boldness to enter, to come before the throne of God through our high priest, Jesus Christ. Oh, that God would bless the prayers of his people. Oh, that God would teach us how to pray. Oh, that God would search our hearts, our lives in Christ. Amen.